You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening. Welcome back to the Doctor's Lounge. Dr. Mike Karuchak here, your host this week. Thanks very much once again for giving some of your time to spend with us here on the Doctor's Lounge on America's Web Radio. We broadcast live Thursday mornings on America's Web Radio, and we are available as a podcast on iTunes, which is very, very convenient. We're proud to have about 15,000 podcast downloads every month, and we are very grateful to you, the listener, for your continued support. So... Uh, you guys know, if you've listened to me much, that I like to start off the, the, the show with some sound bites, and I've got some prepared. And I usually like to roll right into those off of the intro music and sort of give things a little bit of a different flair. But I've, I've got so much to play back that I wanted to start by at least letting you know you've come to the right place because some of this stuff runs several minutes. But uh, you know where we are with this healthcare thing. We know the whole thing is in a shambles. Uh, and I'm just going to throw some sound bites here back to back and just see if you feel at the end of uh, listening to all of these in sequence um, the same way I felt. So uh, so let's see. Hopefully we got these in the right order. So here we go. This is number one. This is um, – uh, Senator McConnell's uh, speech when uh, it turned out that, Ob- that the uh, repeal of Obamacare was going to fail. Uh, he had this to say late at night uh, on the floor of the Senate. We told our constituents we would vote that way. And when the moment came, when the moment came, most of us did. So, yes, this is a disappointment, a disappointment indeed. I regret that our efforts were simply not enough this time. Now, imagine many of our colleagues on the other side are celebrating. So now I think it's appropriate to ask what are their ideas? It'll be interesting to see. For myself, I can say, and I bet I'm pretty safe in saying for most of the people on this side of the aisle, that bailing out insurance companies, bailing out insurance companies, with no thought of any kind of reform, it's not something I want to be part of. So now, Mr. President, it's time to move on. I would say to my dear friend, the majority leader, we are not celebrating. We are relieved. And as I said over and over again, Obamacare was hardly perfect. It did a lot of good things, but it needs improvement. Maybe this can be a moment where we start doing that. Both sides will have to give. The blame hardly falls on one side or the other. But if we can take this moment, a solemn moment, and start working this body the way it had always worked until the last decade or so, with both sides to blame for the deterioration, we will. Our problem is that for seven years we've been telling folks what we're against and what we're opposed to, and then we've had seven months to govern. 
and the best we can come up with is a skinny plan on 24 hours notice, uh, we got to get better at telling people what we believe, why we believe it, and then persuading them that it's right for the country. We've had plenty of time to do it. We set unrealistic expectations, and then we never meet them, which leads to anger and frustration. It's a complicated issue, but it's always been. We've had seven years to figure it out, and the best we came up with was something called skinny. Yeah, that's just about right, I think, Mr. Gowdy. Yes. Uh, this, this just, you listen to these three sound bites together, and it just, it, it makes my blood boil. It makes smoke come out of my ears. It, it, you know, it's, you know, McConnell could not put something together that should have been easy and straightforward in this political environment. Uh, Schumer is disingenuous as they come with, uh, you know, the, these remarks over, uh, you know, taking this moment and, and making Congress work the way it used to. Yeah, I think, uh, you know, Congress the way it used to be was, you know, 50 years of the same thing that Obamacare was. This was no, uh, you know, sort of, uh, of, of, of genuine uh, rec- you know, conciliatory uh, stance. It just drives me crazy that both parties, the arrogance and dishonesty and incompetence of both parties just continues to stun me. I mean, you know, on the Republican side, I mean, was it was it too much to ask? And I'm not even worried about the whole seven year thing. Right. We keep hearing this seven year equation saying that we had seven years to come up with a a replacement for Obamacare. Well, I guess that's true from from a particular point of view, but you didn't know what your political climate was ever going to be. I mean, until Trump was elected, you had no idea if you were ever going to get any chance to do anything. And everyone was expecting Hillary to be elected. So I'm not sure that it makes sense to say we had seven years, but we certainly had from November November, December, and six months this year, eight months, really, nine, because July is finished, uh, to come up with something better, and that easily could have been done. Uh, you know, it, it was it was an obvious thing, and I, I guess it's easy to play Monday morning quarterback in 2020 hindsight and all that kind of thing, but, uh, you know, the method by which this was approached was horrible. I mean, why not just have an open dialogue for 90 days, let everybody talk about what they're going to talk about, meanwhile go behind the scenes and talk to every single representative, every single senator, now that they're elected and you know who you're dealing with, and try to get a lay of the land politically to see who's going to stand for what, as opposed to this reactionary sort of shoot from the hip, fail, shoot from the hip again approach where you know you put plan A up and find a couple of senators that aren't going to vote for it, and you put plan B up and find people that aren't going to vote for it, and plan C up and find people, often the same people, who aren't going to vote for it. I mean, that's a completely unplanned, you know, incompetent shoot from the hip approach. You know, why wasn't there something more planned? Why wasn't there something a little more deliberate? I may get in trouble here with some of my colleagues, both within my organization and, 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 and certainly outside uh, of our organization, uh, to, to say some of these things, but you know, politicians, because of their political promises, are at least on the Republican side, must be married to the idea of repealing Obamacare. Whether you talk about repeal alone, skinny repeal, whatever stupid terminology you want to put on it, that they are they are stuck like a ball and chain around their leg. Uh, they're attached to the idea that they have to repeal Obamacare because that's what they promised the voters. The problem is, and we have said this before on this show, 
that Obamacare is not something that you can just repeal with a one-page bill. You can't pass a bill that says the Affordable Care Act is null and void because Obamacare has been in place for seven years. You know, It's not a light bulb that you can turn on and off. It's more like a metastatic cancer that has sent a metastasis into every organ in your body. You can't just undo that. You can't just do a total body scan and decide to do a giant operation to cut out every piece of metastatic tumor that you find. You just can't cut out every mass that you find. Uh, if the tumor is bad enough, the patient would never survive the operation, and, and doctors know you, you'd never cure the cancer that way anyway. This is more like dismantling. Uh, and it kind of reminds me more like, you remember the old detective shows in the 1970s where, you know, at the climax of the show, there was a bomb ticking that the bad guy set and the good guy had 10 seconds to cut three wires. And if you cut the three wires in the right order, you defuse the bomb. If you cut the wires in the wrong order, you, the whole thing blows up. That's really what Obamacare is like. It has to be unwound. It has to be dismantled and then has to be replaced. But... You know, this whole idea of, of uh, you know, skinny repeal or repeal, uh, you know, in any form where you make it all go away with a single piece of legislation uh, just isn't going to fly. And it's, 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 and part of the problem is when they would suggest that kind of a repeal, you know, it was easy for the Democrats to come up with talking points, uh, like taking Medicaid money away from people, you know, and taking away pre-existing condition coverage, uh, or, you know, the whole age difference with respect to premiums. Uh, you know, there's, there's, there's no way that you can actually do that. So, uh, you know, it, this just again. Every time Republicans take aim at this problem, they shoot themselves in the foot. And and I will be honest with you here. I'm I'm getting a little angry. I am getting a little bit impatient about sitting around waiting for these people to come up with a, a, an option. Uh, you know, we talk about this whole seven years thing. Well, you know who has been working on solutions to Obamacare for seven years? We have. Uh, the group of doctors, you know, represented with Docs for Patient Care Foundation for sure, but not the, that's not the only organization. Uh, and those of you listening know who some of the other folks are. Uh, but we've been working on this for a long time. Um, how about listening to us? How about listening to practicing doctors? If you talk to a practicing doctor, what might you hear? Well, the first thing you gotta face is a, a few inconvenient truths. I hate using that term. A few things that you gotta face here. Number one is, there are no legislative options that have ever been talked about that are actually going to solve the problem of Obamacare because it's really not – Obamacare is really not the problem. Obamacare is just the cherry on top of a dog squeeze Sunday. You know, it's only the cherry on top. It's just the last step of a process that's been going on for half a century as long as the government has been involved in health care. So to, you know, Obama was just foolish enough to get his name stuck on it. Uh, and so he's going to be the one that gets, you know, credit or blame as we gain historical perspective. But uh, n none of these things, none of the stuff that was on the table fixes this. You can't fix this by talking about coverage, right? We've talked about this before. You have to come up with solutions that make healthcare cost less, measured on a tra cash transaction basis. If all you do is figure out how to come up with how to pay $3.6 trillion every year, then the next year it's 3.8 and the next time it's 4.0, and no solution you have is going to be able to pay for it anymore once the number grows to a certain amount. Number two, right, the leadership of both parties, both parties, is no longer a credible source of ideas and is, can no longer be regarded as an effective source of communication. Period. Right? Obamacare was rammed down our throats in 
2008-2009 by one party, Republicans were going to do the same thing. And government's not going to solve this problem. Government's not going to volunteer to reduce its footprint, either its regulatory footprint or its financial footprint. Right? Politicians are too beholden to their campaign donors that come from big places like insurance companies and great big corporations and, and folks that have vested interests that don't reflect uh, what's good for everyone. If you ask a doc, you know, repeal and replace Obamacare or or save Obamacare and fix it, right? Each party has different rhetoric on how to discuss this stuff. But here's the deal. I don't really care what you call it. I don't care what you call it. All we need to do is get from where we are from where we need to be. And if you want to describe that as repeal and replace or you want to describe that as a, you know, a save it and fix it, I mean think of it this way. Let's say you drive a red car and you decide you want a blue car. Right? You can get to a blue car one of two ways. You can sell your red car and buy a blue car. Right, That's repeal and replace. Or you can have your blue car painted red. Just repaint your old one. Either way, you end up with the, co- the color you want. You can do it by starting with the car you own and redoing it. Or you can sell the car you have and buy something else. It really doesn't matter how you get there. Uh, we're already at the end of the first segment. You are listening to The Doctor's Lounge on America's Web Radio. Stay with us. The Docs for Patient Care Foundation is your way to join the fight and become a member of an organization created by doctors for patients dedicated to fighting for your health care freedom and preserving the doctor-patient relationship. Get a pen and paper. Write down docsforpatientcarefoundation.org. That's D-O-C-S, the number four patientcarefoundation.org. Go to our site and please make a generous tax-deductible donation and join the fight today. Thank you. Did you miss a show that you really wanted to hear? All of our programs are available for download on americaswebradio.com and on iTunes. You can listen to your favorite programs on americaswebradio.com anytime you like. The Docs for Patient Care Foundation is your way to join the fight and become a member of an organization created by doctors for patients dedicated to fighting for your health care freedom and preserving the doctor-patient relationship. Get a pen and paper. Write down www.docsforpatientcarefoundation.org. That's www.docsforpatientcarefoundation.org. Go to our site and please make a generous tax-deductible donation and join the fight today. Thank you. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening. Welcome back to the Doctor's Lounge on America's Web Radio. Karuchak, your host here. Thanks for sticking with us. Uh, We are... uh, I am, actually. Uh, I'm indulging myself here a little bit at your expense, and I hope you are good enough to listen. I think it's going to be worth it, although I'll admit up front that much of the front end of this show is turning into kind of a rant, if you will. Uh, and I think we're all kind of frustrated. I, I suspect it will reflect your frustration as well. Uh, we're sitting here well past six months uh, into an administration and a Congress that we really expected – because uh, they had no bloody excuse not to. We really expected that these folks would deliver on health care reform, and we found not only that they have failed to deliver on health care reform so far, but the the process by which they approached the problem was so poorly thought out, so incompetent, and so disappointing um, that it you know you, you listen to those three sound bites that I played to open the first segment. 
and you just have to ask yourself, I mean, you know, where do these people, what, what the heck were they thinking? Uh, when they decided to do this in secret, like the Democrats did, try to ram it down our throats by one party, like the Democrats did, and, and and expect this all to work, to come up with these, you know, skinny repeal and repeal without replace, and just so these sort of knee-jerk responses to, you know, failed steps, uh, and it's kind of like with every small failure, you know, their response was. You know, less and less effective until the point where, the, you know, at the moment, the whole thing has blown up in their faces and we are nowhere with health care reform. And although, you know, they're supposed to be still working on it and there are people that, you know, aren't giving up on it, I guess, thankfully, you know, I just don't know uh, unless you really change some fundamentals where we're going to go next. Uh, and I am going to propose how to change some fundamentals. So stick around for some kind of crazy ideas and uh, and let's see what you think. So we had sort of started, uh, sort of ended the last segment. I'm going to kind of double back and, and sort of try to do all this in one, uh, you know, sort of breath, if you will, uh, to say, you know, what is it that's important to practicing physicians? Uh, as we look at this, and again, we have a better view than anybody who works in the government who used to be a doc. And I'm sorry for saying that. We have some dear friends who are former physicians who are working in Washington, and I don't mean to uh, to attack too much, but, you know, we've been at this a while, and, you know, the current approach isn't working. I think we have to question everything that's out there if we're going to come up with some way to succeed at this. But none of the legislative options that are out there actually solve the problem. Right. None of the things they're talking about. I mean, as long as you're talking about coverage as opposed to actually making things cost less, you know, the, we're not going to succeed. I mean, it's a three point six trillion dollar tab for health care. Let's say you come up with a way to come to generate three point six trillion. Well, next year, the price goes up and the year after that, the price goes up until nobody's plan is going to work. We have to figure out how to make health care cost less. Right. Doctors visits don't have to cost hundreds of dollars. And I'm saying that at the risk of hurting my own pocket. But doctors visits don't have to cost hundreds of dollars. Imaging studies don't have to cost thousands of dollars. And operations and other more elaborate treatments don't have to cost tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of dollars. Those prices can come down. If we create the appropriate environment to allow them to come down. And there are ways of doing that. Secondly, the current leadership, and I mean both parties, are no longer credible. They're not effective communicators. They are not an effective or credible source of ideas. We need to have new ideas presented by new faces. Right? Politicians are way too tied down to the people who finance their campaigns that often have objectives to run counter to what we're trying to do. It just isn't working. And we can argue it in theory all you want, but we've been at this for 50 years, and it hasn't worked to this point. There's no reason to think that somehow magically that's going to turn around now. We talked about how doctors – I don't care what you call it. Right, you can call it repeal and replace. You can call it save Obamacare and fix it. You know, maybe there's a clever solution out there that allows the Democrats to claim victory by having saved it and the Republicans to claim victory by having repealed and replaced it. But like we talked about in the last segment, if you own a red car and you want a blue car, you can repeal and replace your red car, sell it and buy a blue car, or you can take your red car and have it painted blue. Right, That would be saving it. It doesn't matter. Either way, you end up with the color of the car that you want, and you know it doesn't really matter how you get there. 
So what's the last thing doctors understand that politicians don't? And that is, and we've talked about this before, this is nothing new, that you can't just because you put an insurance card in somebody's hand doesn't mean they're covered. And, you know, you've heard stories on this program. We, we, we know patients. I mean, to doctors, all this stuff aren't statistics. They are real names, real faces, real sad stories. Uh, I've had somebody in my practice who uh, came in on an Obamacare exchange plan, which we accept, but the hospital that I would take that patient to for surgery doesn't accept the Obamacare exchange plan that the patient had. So I could not take care of this patient. And we had to figure out somewhere else to send him, and I'm not sure we ever solved that problem. Bottom line, government is not going to create a program that fixes this. I'm going to say it again. Government's not going to create a program that fixes that. I don't care if you let Democrats have full control. We know what they do. Or Republicans have full control. Even if we gave the Republicans by some magic thing, we gave them 61 votes in the Senate. And we didn't have to deal with reconciliation and all that stuff. I still don't think that they could come up with a solution to do this because there's too much divergence of opinion, too many people beholden to too many other sinister forces. Uh, I don't think it works that way. I think we need to change the strategy to a different approach. I think we need to just ask for legislation that allows, doesn't mandate, but allows the development of free market solutions like direct primary care, like Oklahoma Surgery Center, uh, and just make sure these, these, this legislation, whatever comes next, if anything, um, does not prohibit those things like, say, Canada forces that out. The, 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 there's a way that we can work on the side and let direct primary care flourish and let cash-based surgery flourish. Uh, and, and, and so – let the government have whatever they want. As long as they let us do our thing, I almost don't care what they do otherwise because all of it's going to be crap. So I think we need to pressure, put pressure on folks just to allow an outside, a system outside the main government design, the main framework, be allowed to operate and be allowed to grow, not mandated, but to grow on its own without any interference, and let folks choose. Just let folks choose. Heck, you know, we could even change the, we could change the expression. If you like your Obamacare, you can keep your Obamacare. Just let the rest of us work on something better. Now, that's the new idea, right? We're going to change the ask. Instead of asking for an elaborate repeal and replace that, that, mandates anything i'm all i'm asking for is something that allows what david goldhill calls green shoots right stuff to flourish on the side right i'm not asking for a law that that forces direct primary care i'm asking for a law that allows direct primary care because i'm not afraid to put my money where my mouth is none of us are right all we're asking is don't outlaw it right just give it room to grow Right, allow you know pass legislation that allows direct primary care physicians to exist without fear of retribution from state insurance commissioners. Um, allow price transparency. Allow folks to put cash prices up without getting in trouble with insurers because of most favored nation contracts or other things that that really make it very very difficult to be price transparent. 
right? You can't just demand price transparency. You've got to create an environment that allows price transparency, right? You can't just pass a law that forces prices down. You have to allow the creation of an environment that will force prices down on its own. And I don't, you know, let's just allow Medicare money and Medicaid money to be used to pay direct primary care premiums. Those are the kinds of things that I think will will bring about change. But I'm not asking for it to be mandated. I'm just asking for it to be allowed to kind of live off to the side because it is my belief that if that's allowed to happen, those things will grow on their own. And they'll grow because the people choose them, because patients will choose that model of care over a regulatory heavy Obamacare things. Doctors will choose to provide care in those environments, and patients will seek care in those environments, and it will grow and overtake the official government system on its own without any sort of regulatory problem. So I think that's the strategy change. And as long as they can write that into some sort of repeal, I almost don't care. Write something that lets Republicans claim victory and Democrats claim victory and let the politicians spin their wheels because we don't care about them. We care about our patients. So what about the new faces? Right? I said we needed to have new ideas presented by new faces. And this is where I'm going to let a little anger and frustration come through here because I think the new faces need to be us. I think the new faces need to come from groups like ours, not just us, of course, um, groups of practicing physicians who, who do what we do and live like we live. How is that? That is like the day I had today. Right? I saw 31 patients in the office. We were cranking it out from 8 o'clock in the morning until 6.30 at night seeing the patients and getting the work done, and then you come home and you do your reading and you do your prep and you, you get ready for your radio show or you do your reading or you, 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 you write your opinion piece, and, and we've been doing that for seven years. You want to know who's been working for seven years? We've been working for seven years. Congress hasn't, but we, a small but rapidly growing group of full-time practicing doctors, have become experts on healthcare policy. It's time to give us the lead in this issue. And I know that may sound a little self-centered and arrogant and naive, but you know I've tried to be the better man for you know the better part of all these years, and I'm just getting a little bit tired of it. It's time for practicing physicians to take the lead. What advantages do we offer? Well, first off, we're not politicians. That's probably the biggest one. We're not bound to campaign promises. We're not bound to political contributors. We don't have to raise money. We don't care about getting elected. Elected, all we care about is our patients and our ability to provide care for our patients. So we have nothing to lose politically. I can sit behind this microphone and say pretty much what I want to because I don't have an election to do and I don't have to worry about that stuff. Uh, and, and that allows us much more flexibility. Right? We've been in the trenches. We study this stuff in the evening. We go take care of patients the next morning and the next morning and the next morning after that. That gives us much better insight than anybody who makes a career inside the Beltway, even if they do have MD after their name. Right? We're, we're, we're not tied to past failures. We can be fresh faces with fresh ideas and no fear. We're not afraid to call something BS if it's BS. We're not afraid to support something if we like it. And I think if we went under those conditions, we could go to the Democrats the way Schumer actually suggested when I played back is to come up with something where politicians from both parties are involved. Because sadly, 
I think we've proven the Republicans aren't going to do it on their own without getting some Democratic votes somehow. You're listening to The Doctor's Lounge on America's Web Radio. The Docs for Patient Care Foundation is your way to join the fight and become a member of an organization created by doctors for patients dedicated to fighting for your health care freedom and preserving the doctor-patient relationship. Get a pen and paper. Write down www.docsforpatientcarefoundation.org. That's www.docsforpatientcarefoundation.org. Go to our site and please make a generous tax-deductible donation and join the fight today. Thank you. Did you miss a show that you really wanted to hear? All of our programs are available for download on AmericasWebRadio.com and on iTunes. You can listen to your favorite programs on AmericasWebRadio.com anytime you like. The Docs for Patient Care Foundation is your way to join the fight and become a member of an organization created by doctors for patients dedicated to fighting for your health care freedom and preserving the doctor-patient relationship. Get a pen and paper. Write down docsforpatientcarefoundation.org. That's D-O-C-S, the number four, patientcarefoundation.org. Go to our site and please make a generous tax-deductible donation and join the fight today. Thank you. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening. Welcome back to the Doctor's Lounge. Dr. K. Karuchak, your host this week. Thanks for being with us here on America's Web Radio. Uh, We are talking about a new health IT topic this week as we confront a relative lull in the national uh, dialogue regarding healthcare reform gives us an opportunity, a little bit of wiggle room to sort of look in some other directions for some interesting things to talk about. So one thing that is coming up fast and furious in the healthcare information technology world is a new technology called blockchain. Actually, it's not that new. It was actually created back in 2008. But a technology called blockchain, which may hold very significant promise in solving the Health IT security problems, which, as we were discussing in the last segment, remain terrible, and discussing some of the interoperability problems uh, in, in where legitimate people like myself as a doc who, who need access to healthcare data from patients actually have a harder time than the hackers do. You know, it, probably a, uh, you know, a, a Lithuanian teenager living in Eastern Europe in his mother's basement with a couple of desktop computers can probably get to my patient's data easier than I can. I mean, that's the ugly irony here. You know, we have a ridiculous set of regulations that, you know, as hackers grab information almost every day, it seems, uh, we have regulations that get hysterical if I text a physician colleague regarding a patient and I include protected health information, I can get busted for that. But of course the hackers can do whatever they want to. So, you know, we've got this ugly irony going on in, in health IT regulation. You know, one of the ways that we get out of that quagmire is for the technology to actually catch up to where we are in terms of needs, right? That's another thing the regulations did. Put all these records online, right? 300 million Americans are roughly Everybody's healthcare records are online now. Everybody's vulnerable to identity theft. At some point, you know, hopefully there is some demand for security technology to catch up to our needs. And maybe this technology called blockchain, which we're going to spend the rest of the segment and maybe farther explaining, maybe has some promise. A lot of people think that it does. 
So let's go back. We were talking about what's the fundamental problem with, with the way health IT data is structured right now. Well, it's the same paradigm we have everywhere else where, where you have a server or a network of servers that stores all of your information, right? It's a hub and spoke thing, right? The server is the hub and then all of the users of that database that's on the server are the spokes of the wheel. But everything comes to a central point. There's only one copy of everything. It's all maintained centrally and that creates this cr- tremendously rich target for hackers to go after and all you have to do is kick in the front door with a valid username and password and you're in. Everything is there. So how do we fix that? Well, the first thing we need to do is change the paradigm. Um, until we get rid of that rich target where all you got to do is break in through with one username password or something similar and you now have access to hundreds of thousands or millions of healthcare records or financial records or any kind of records that allows you to steal someone's identity – we have to get rid of the target. We have to make it so there aren't such attractive targets. And so anything that a hacker would go after, it becomes more trouble than it's worth. Number one, by making it hard to get in, of course. But number two, by making it such that things are so decentralized, not centralized, but decentralized, that it becomes ridiculous to try and steal it. I mean, I, I guess the best example I can think of is, you know, think about Fort Knox, right? I mean, Fort Knox here, we all know what that is. That's where all the United States gold is stored, let's say. Uh, and, you know, it's it, what if instead of putting all the gold in one place, we spread it out? And all the gold was in a bunch of secret locations. Nobody knew where the gold was except for the people who needed to know. And now it makes no point to break into Fort Knox because there's not enough gold there to make it worth anybody's while. And you don't know where the rest of the gold is, so you don't know where to try to break into. So, you know, you could argue that the gold is a lot safer if it's scattered all over the country. There's no one repository of gold that is big enough to make it worth a thief's worthwhile to, number one, find out where it is, and number two, to actually try to break in and steal it. And even if a thief manages to do that, only a small percentage of the gold reserve is stolen except for the whole thing. So that's that's kind of the idea is instead of having one giant data repository for all this healthcare information, let's make it a bunch of smaller ones. Let's decentralize what's going on and make it that much safer because there are no more rich targets. Yeah, there's there's nothing more to go after. So so how do we do that? Well, Let's look at this technology called blockchain. I think the first thing we need to do is sort of look at history, right? I like giving history lessons. Hopefully you like hearing them. I don't know. But, but uh, you know, I, I think you can't figure out where you are until you understand where you've been. So you may not have heard of blockchain before, but you probably heard of Bitcoin. And where did you hear of Bitcoin? Well, the places you probably heard of Bitcoin were not terribly flattering stories. In healthcare, the one place you probably heard of Bitcoin before is when, whenever an institution gets ransomwared, right? A hospital goes to log on to its EMR at 6 a.m. and discovers that all the data has been locked up. And unless you pay the kidnappers, shall we say, um, a ransom, um, they're not only going to keep your data locked up and keep you away from it, but they're going to sell it to other people, right? Ransomware. That's what ransomware is. They literally kidnap your medical data. Well, how do the kidnappers want to be paid? Well, they want to be paid in this thing called Bitcoin, which is in loose terms a digital currency that is completely anonymous. So Bitcoin is the currency of criminals, right? Ransomware folks and some other things. There was a thing called uh, 
uh, Silk Road, which was a, a website where you could buy drugs, and you know I think there was human trafficking there and a bunch of other things. Um, but it was another one of these things in the dark web, you know, the criminal underworld part of the internet. Uh, and so Bitcoin, with its blockchain technology, has this sort of sordid history that kind of gives it a bad taste. Uh, early from early on, and it even you know Bitcoin was hacked, and people had their Bitcoin currency stolen. So you know even it had sort of a rough start when it came to security. But eventually, over the last several years, you know Bitcoin has been recognized as a safe uh, method of currency, uh, such that governments are starting to recognize it. They're starting to put regulations in place that recognize and allow its use. And uh, it's it's gaining legitimacy in you know the legitimate uh, uh, you know part of the universe, uh, and the interesting thing is that even in the criminal world it seems to be secure. So the blockchain technology that is behind Bitcoin um, seems to be legit, despite its rather inauspicious or shall we say even sort of sketchy beginnings. So, so how does Bitcoin work? Well, everyone knows that Bitcoin is a digital currency. It is not exactly equivalent to dollars. There's an exchange rate between dollars and Bitcoins, and that exchange rate floats. Uh, you know, I'm not sure exactly what it is today, but here's what makes Bitcoin unique is that there is no central bank, shall we say. Uh, think about you do your online banking, right? But but everybody does online banking now. We certainly do it in our household. But if you think about it, how does that work? Well, there is a central bank that keeps track of your money and keeps track of your account balances. And so you log on to that with a username and password. You go in and, and see your checking account ledger and your savings account and your money market and whatever. But the bank is the central trusted entity, right? You trust the bank. I mean, obviously, you look over their shoulder and make sure it all looks right. Um, but in essence, the bank is trusted to keep your money and maintain your balances and not give away your money to unauthorized people who you know will inevitably come looking for it. But there is a central entity, right? It's just like we we're talking about with healthcare information data. It's a hub and spoke thing, right? The bank's the hub. All the customers are the spokes. Bitcoin doesn't have that. And so that's the first conceptual leap that you're going to have to – you, you, you're probably not going to understand all this the first time you hear it from me. I didn't understand it the first time I read about it. it. It took a couple of days of research and reading different people talking about it to sort of get this into my head. So I'll do my best to at least start the task of getting it into your head. But the first thing that you try to think about with Bitcoin is there's no bank. There's no single central accounting ledger that says – Dr. K has 10 Bitcoins, right? Susie Smith has five Bitcoins. Bob Jones has 100 Bitcoins. And that that's all stored in a single ledger in a central location. With Bitcoin, using blockchain, that central ledger doesn't exist. So how do you keep up with who has what? Well, there's a ledger. There is a ledger, but that ledger is not kept in a single place. It is, in fact, replicated such that every single participant in the digital economy, this network of servers, um, has has a copy of the ledger. Now, you're going to hear me shuffling papers around a little bit because I've got a 
I've got to refer to my notes to be sure I get this right. Uh, and like I said, it's not easy, but I'm going to try to do this as best I can. So imagine, if you will, close your eyes, relax your mind, stretch, use your feelings, Luke, use the force here, because this is hard to sort of get your arms around the first time, get your brain around. But imagine that a network of computers, let's say a thousand computers, a thousand users, all want to get together and create their own little digital economy where money is exchanged, digital currency is exchanged between and among these 1,000 users, each of whom has a computer and that they're all linked together. And again, this the linkage is what they say in the business peer-to-peer. That means every computer has its own individual connection to every other computer. There is no central server. Right, think about that again. There is no central server. It's every, you know, if there's a thousand computers, each computer has 999 connections to each of the other computers. So the ledger, right, called the blockchain, right, we'll get into that now. The ledger is kept in something called a blockchain. So it's a copy of the accounting ledger, but instead of a single copy being kept in a single central server computer, every single user on the network has the entire accounting ledger. That means every single one of those thousand users has the ledger not only for its own account, but for each of the 999 other accounts. So you know not only how much money you have, but how much money everybody else has. Now, that might not have individual names. They're anonymous and it's, you know, numbers instead of names. But the point is there's a thousand copies of that accounting ledger, not just one. So what does that mean in terms of security at the first level? Well, it means that if a hacker is going to get in and steal money from me, they not only have to fraudulently change my ledger, but they got to fraudulently change a thousand ledgers. And if they try to just come in and change my ledger, it'll never fly because if that kind of transaction on a blockchain network would immediately be recognized as invalid because it was only addressing one copy of the ledger and not all 1,000 copies all at once. We will continue our explanation of blockchain in the next segment. You are listening to the Doctor's Lounge on America's Web Radio. Stay with us. This is complicated, but stay with me. We're going we're gonna to make it make sense. The Docs for Patient Care Foundation is your way to join the fight and become a member of an organization created by doctors for patients dedicated to fighting for your health care freedom and preserving the doctor-patient relationship. Get a pen and paper. Write down docsforpatientcarefoundation.org. That's D-O-C-S, the number four patientcarefoundation.org. Go to our site and please make a generous tax-deductible donation and join the fight today. Thank you. Did you miss a show that you really wanted to hear? All of our programs are available for download on americaswebradio.com and on iTunes. You can listen to your favorite programs on americaswebradio.com anytime you like. 
The Docs for Patient Care Foundation is your way to join the fight and become a member of an organization created by doctors for patients dedicated to fighting for your health care freedom and preserving the doctor-patient relationship. Get a pen and paper. Write down www.docsforpatientcarefoundation.org. That's www.docsforpatientcarefoundation.org. Go to our site and please make a generous tax-deductible donation and join the fight today. Thank you. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening. Welcome back to the Doctor's Lounge. Karuchek here this week on America's Web Radio. Thanks very much for sticking with us through some difficult mental exercises today. We are building your mental muscles, talking about blockchain, this new information technology security and interoperability technique. And we were talking about the fact that if you're going to make data secure at all, uh, that you've got to get rid of this whole sort of central server, the one place where all your data is stored, thinking that you're going to guard this with passwords or routers or, you know, you know, you, you can't make anything secure enough. If you have a, a target that rich, the hackers are going to get it eventually. And that you've got to come up with a different paradigm on how you store and manipulate and exchange data. And that's what blockchain does. So that's what we were talking about, you know, in the first two segments, and we're going to continue this explanation. So the first thing about blockchain that's different than what you're used to is that the data is not stored centrally. Every member of the network has a copy of the ledger of transactions, and when a new transaction is created by a legitimate user, that is broadcast to the entire network. So there's, you know, if there's a 1,000 user network, there's 1,000 copies of the ledger of transactions, which is called the blockchain, for reasons we'll get into later. But if you want to add an entry to the blockchain, you have to broadcast that to the entire network, creates a thousand new copies of that transaction. And so the first problem that a hacker has is that, number one, they don't have access to account balances. They only have access to individual transactions. That gives them far less power. And the second is that even in order to have access to a single transaction, they have to change that transaction fraudulently on a thousand servers, not just one or the number of users in the network. I, I picked a thousand as an arbitrary number. You know, the, the, if it's a million users on a digital economy network, then there's a million copies of the ledger and a hacker has to change a million copies and hack into a million computers, not just one. And that's the first level of security. That's the first place where blockchain is fundamentally different from the client server model that we're all used to where you log on to a central server and put your username and password and boom, you're in as they say. So that's the first difference. So now you might say at this point, if this is all you heard, you say, well, that's no big deal. If there's a method for legitimate transactions to go out over a network of a thousand computers, all I have to do is replicate that and make a fraudulent uh, broadcast look like a legitimate broadcast, and I can change a thousand servers, copies of a ledger, no problem, right? Well, no, because there's more to it than that. So that's where we're going. What does a legitimate transaction look like and how do you make it 
next to impossible for a hacker or other ne'er-do-well to create a fraudulent transaction that looks like a legitimate transaction. Well, what happens is when you create a transaction, let's say that Bob wants to give five bitcoins to Susan. Well, that's broadcast over the network, but the, the problem is it's not accepted as legitimate until the transaction is mined. That's what they call it, mining. So what happens? Well, what happens is that transaction has to have what they call a hash, which is kind of like a transaction ID, best as I can tell. But how do you create a legitimate transaction ID? Well, there's about three or four things that go into that ID. It's not just a username password. There is a private key that the person creating the transaction has. There is a public key that is accessible to everybody on the network. So it's kind of like a safety deposit box, right? You go into the bank, you want to get something out of your safety deposit box, you bring your key, the bank's got their key, you got to put two keys into two locks and turn both keys and out comes the box. But you've got to unlock the safe and then you got to put in two keys. So this is kind of the same thing. You've got to have the public key, you have to have the private key, and you have to have the transaction ID from the last the prior transaction that appeared on the network. Now think about how hard that would be to find. So this is like you got a, you've got three or four things in here. So what happens is you take the prior transaction ID from which has nothing to do with the transaction you're creating and you use the public key plus plus the private key and create this complex mathematical problem and I will Confess up front, I do not fully understand this, but it's an extremely complex mathematical problem that's generated based on the two keys, and it's done to the prior transaction ID to create the transaction ID that goes with the trans- the new transaction you're trying to broadcast. So if that doesn't spin your head around just trying to explain it, imagine how hard it must be to to hack that. And it's and it's to the point where it takes uh, it takes the aggregate computer power of those entire thousand computers on the network about ten minutes to retrieve the keys, retrieve the ID from the prior transaction, and and churn this complex mathematical problem out to create a legitimate ID for the new transaction. Oh, that made me exhausted just explaining that. So, but the bottom line is that creating a a new legitimate transaction, right? Adding a block to the blockchain, right? Lengthening the blockchain by a link, if you will, is a very complex process that requires uh, pulling data from multiple distant sources, putting them together to create a math problem that creates that requires a huge amount of aggregate computer power to solve. And then the transaction is accepted as legitimate, and that is designed to take about 10 minutes for the entire network to do that. So that's how links are added to the blockchain. And one of the levels of security here is that your you know, proverbial hacker in their mother's basement with just a few computers can't match the aggregate computing power of thousands of legitimate computers on the network. And so legitimate computers will always retrieve the keys and solve the problem first before the hacker can. And even if the hacker manages to beat the billions to one mathematical odds, what does the hacker really get? They only get one transaction. 
So even if they beat, you know, what I'm told based on reading is, you know, billions to one odds of being able to solve the problem before the network miners do, that um, that they won't that the reward is not enough to justify the effort, right? So that's a fundamental change from what we talked about in the beginning, which is that all you got to deal with one. You know, in in the classic sort of password username password server paradigm that we're living with today, where you know it's certainly worth the effort to try to find a username and password because once you get in, you have access to everything. When you do this, and this gets back to this immune system example I was talking about when the CEO of IBM was talking about security needs to look like our body's immune systems, that's what this is, right? I mean, if you get a cut in the skin and a bacteria goes through, the minute it gets below the skin, the immune system starts to fight that bacteria. Here you've got the same thing going on where even if you break through the skin and manage to hijack a transaction on blockchain or create a fraudulent transaction on blockchain, you've only done one transaction – uh, you know, you don't have access to the entire account balances of every user because account balances aren't even stored as discrete data, which kind of gets into the next sort of you know piece of this thing, which is that um, you know you only you can only create you don't, you don't even know what kind of fraudulent transaction to create, right? If let's go back to the let's go back to the Sun Trust example. Let's say I have a thousand dollars in my checking account. And let's say that a hacker gets my username and password somehow and hacks into my bank account and sees I have $1,000, right? They can steal the entire $1,000 just like that. They can immediately look. The bank stores that balance as discrete data. They say, okay, Karu Check's got $1,000. Boom. You know, I got his checking account and his routing number, and I'm going to move that account from his account to my account, and it's done. How did they know that $1,000 was there? Because it's easy to see. It's right there. It's, it's stored as discrete data. In, in a blockchain network, balances aren't stored as discrete data. So if somebody were to break into my account or try to on a blockchain network, they wouldn't see my account balance anywhere. Right? The only way that you can see an account balance is to go back and look at every single transaction that's assigned to my account all the way back to the beginning of the creation of the network, do the arithmetic and figure out the balance. The problem is to do that, they have to hack into every single transaction down the blockchain, right? millions of them, to find the ones that apply to my account and do the arithmetic and see how much money I have. And again, that becomes not only almost mathematically impossible, but you have a situation where the reward doesn't justify the effort. And so that that becomes that's why people are excited about blockchain, right? Because number one, you create a, a situation where you're looking only at transactions, not at balances. And you're only looking at tiny pieces of the whole picture instead of breaking through the front door with a username and password and seeing the entire system all at once. So in the third, what, third, fourth segment, I don't remember where we are now. I guess we're, we're coming up, we're, we're 10 minutes into the, 11 minutes into the third segment. In the last segment, we'll get into exactly how this works in healthcare because there is another layer to think about. And we can sort of give you a little bit of a teaser here in two minutes. But in healthcare, it needs to work a little bit different. 
in healthcare, you know, how if we were to literally apply the blockchain paradigm, that would mean that you know the ledger, so to speak, the database would be replicated on every single user in the network. So if we have a million doctors, let's say, just to make it very simple. So we would have a million users on the blockchain network that every single doctor's database would have a complete copy of the ledger, and that would mean that every single doctor would have the healthcare data literally of every single patient in the country, whether you were a legitimate – whether that patient was yours or not. Now, that obviously is impractical, right? We don't have the computing power, the computational power. We don't have the bandwidth. We don't have the electricity to maintain that level of networking. So how do you bring that down and make that practical? Uh, you know, that's what we'll talk about in the next segment. Uh, we're about 30 seconds early, but I'm going to end it anyway, and, um, and we'll go on from there. Um, you are listening to the Doctor's Lounge on America's Web Radio. Stay with us for the fourth segment, and we'll figure out how blockchain applies to your electronic medical records. Stay with us. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening. This is Dr. Susan Blank, host of Detailing Addiction and medical director of the Atlanta Healing Center. Please join me on Tuesday afternoons at 4 p.m. Affordable health insurance was the promise of Obamacare, but for many, the government mandate caused more problems than it solved. This is Dr. Elena George from Medicine on Call, and I want to tell you about a truly affordable alternative allowed under Obamacare, Liberty HealthShare. Liberty HealthShare bypasses doctor and hospital panels, giving you the freedom to choose. And with a maximum of $500 out-of-pocket per person and 100% coverage up to $1 million per year per occurrence, you can rest assured knowing you and your family are protected. Coverage starts as low as $107 per month and also includes dental, vision, pharmacy, and holistic care. Liberty HealthShare puts you back in charge of your health. Visit them online at libertyoncall.org. Again, for a true affordable alternative to Obamacare, visit libertyoncall.org or call toll-free 1-800-714-6993 today. Perhaps you are struggling to cope with the disease of addiction. If not, you probably know a family member or friend that needs help in battling the cravings and the personal and professional damage done by the effects of drugs or alcohol. Get a pen and paper and be ready to write down the following. These are the issues that the trained staff at the Atlanta Healing Center address and treat every day. Their doctors and counselors with over 40 years of practice in the field of addiction can treat the suffering individual in a thoughtful, compassionate, and experienced manner and guide him or her along the path to recovery. So call 770-696-9862 and speak to a knowledgeable staff member about how you or your loved one can be helped to enjoy a better and healthier life. More information is also available on the website at www.AtlantaHealingCenter.com. This is Lawyer Liz. Join me each week as we discuss drones, the Internet of Things, and all the technology in between. It's Buzz Off with Lawyer Liz, Wednesdays at 2. Do you have problems with sinus pain and pressure? Do other people smell things that you don't? Have you lost the joy in eating because food just doesn't taste like it used to? Is your nose always stuffy no matter what you do? 
Maybe you have sinus or nasal polyps. These are generally benign growths that occur from chronic sinus infection or allergies that are either undertreated or have not been treated at all. At Peachtree ENT Center, we specialize in minimally invasive balloon dilation sinus surgery and correction of a deviated nasal septum and turbinate reduction surgery that can be done in the office. We use a state-of-the-art equipment so that you can see the problem. You will be a partner in your care, and together we will decide the course of treatment. We believe in old-fashioned medicine, where we take the time to fix the problem, not just medicate the symptoms. You can rest assured that all options will be offered before surgery is recommended, because Peachtree ENT Center is where patient care counts. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening. 